Hey, once again, happy Mother's Day. Glad that you are hanging out with us today, whether this is uh, your millionth time with us at The Journey or the first time. Thanks for being with us this Sunday morning. Um, yesterday, we had child dedications in here. We had nine families, dedicated 12 children. It was pure chaos and beauty at the same time. So it was kind of both of those, but we celebrate with those families who uh, took that step yesterday. We had a lot of fun with them. A Yale psychology professor, Laurie Santos, she began noticing something that was really kind of problematic to her about the students that she was leading. She, she realized they were really struggling with things like depression and anxiety and stress. And so in 2018, she decides to start this new class that she called Psychology and the Good Life. Well, this class was offered, of course, in person, but it was also offered online. And in the 320 plus years that this institution has been around, this has become their most popular class. In 2019, there were 22,522 new enrollments into the class. A year later, April 2020, uh, 2020 860,494 new enrollments and to this class, and up until this time, almost four million people have taken this particular class. Question is, why? Why would this class be so popular? What was the question they were trying to answer? And the question they were asking that they're looking for the answer to is, what is it that makes you happy? Here's what Santos said. She said, all of us want to be happier. The problem is that we have a lot of misconceptions about what really will make us happy. One of the lessons from this course is how we view the things that we think make us happy. Because for some people, the, the reason we struggle with happiness is that we often focus on the things in our life that are the wrong things to be focused on to bring us happiness. What I mean is this boils down many times our happiness is all about how much money we have and the, the job that we do and our looks and our stuff. We're not happy because we're not content with what we have. And so today as we continue this series called Finding, we're going to talk about finding contentment. And uh, as Mike just said, we, we've talked about finding life and finding purpose. And last week we talked about finding success but today we're going to talk about finding contentment because let's just be honest. This is something we all struggle with. We never think that we have enough. And so we're never content with what we have, which probably means we're never happy with the life we live. And so this morning we're going to talk about what does it look like for us to find true contentment in our life. Now, we're going back to the letter of the Philippians. Uh, we've been in this particular letter in the New Testament uh, over the course of this series. But I want to begin today by actually giving us a little bit more background about Paul and about this church and about this location, because it really will help us understand what we're really going to read this morning. Uh, last week, when we talked about Paul, we said, you know, Paul uh, came out of this, this Jewish religious political system where he was extremely successful. I mean, he had everything you could imagine. But he meets Jesus, totally changes his life, and then he decides, well, I'm gonna spend the rest of my life telling more and more people about Jesus. So that's exactly what he do, does. So for him, this means traveling. 
he starts to travel to all these different cities and he goes to these cities, he meets a few people, he gets a job, uh, he begins to talk to these people, he begins to build relationships with them. They get to know who Jesus is, they become followers of Jesus and from this little group he starts to plant these small house churches. Now over time He's investing in people in those churches to be leaders within those churches. And when he feels the time is right, which was usually a couple years later, Paul would move on to this next city and start this whole process over again. Now we think about that and we're probably like, well, Paul probably just traveled wherever he wanted to go, whatever sites he wanted to see. And that's how he ends up in these particular places. That's not how this worked. All right. It wasn't like Paul had a map either where he kind of closed his eyes and said, mm, I'm going to go here next. And he hit Philippi. He's like, I'm going to go to Philippi because that's where my finger ended up. Now, Paul was strategic. He was purposeful. Some of you here, you work in the world of strategy. Uh, you go to school for strategy. Paul was very strategic in these places that he ends up. Now, what is he looking for? A couple of things. He's looking for a travel artery. He's looking for a main travel point for people from all over the world. And he's also looking for a commerce center. He's looking for a place where business is happening. Because in Paul's mind, he's like, man, if we get a couple of people who come to town to come to follow Jesus, and they go back to where they live, they go back to this other city, they can continue to spread the news about who Jesus is all throughout the world. And so Paul, again, is very strategic about where he is. Philippi is one of those locations. Uh, it was a Roman colony in the region of Macedonia. There's a map right here. You can see it up in the top center where Philippi was located. Uh, it was a Roman colony. Uh, it was a Roman outpost. Uh, what the Romans would do, um, they would take about 300 Romans who were veteran soldiers and uh, they would grant them their citizenship and then they would send them with their wives and their kids and they would send them to these outposts to live there. Again, why would they do this? Strategy. They're bringing in the Roman culture. They're bringing in Roman ideas. And so the, the, the history or, or the, the culture of Rome is spreading because you've got these people that are very specific to Rome in these particular outposts. Well, it's here in this outpost, this place called Philippi, about 52 CE, that Paul begins this church. Now, who's in this church? There are a couple of people who maybe come out of a Jewish faith that are there, but most of them are not. Most of them are Greek. Uh, they were not followers of Jesus. They had no concept of God. Uh, in fact, if we go to the book of Acts, we read of three people that became followers of Christ that were from this particular church. Uh, one is a lady. Her name was Lydia. She was from Asia, and she was known for selling things that were purple. Um, you had this Greek slave girl. You had this Roman citizen who was a jailer. So you can kind of see this was a very, very diverse church. And it's even thought that this was kind of the, the church that was the outpost to the beginning of Christianity beginning to spread into more and more of Europe. So here we have Paul. He's writing this letter to this church. We're about 10 years later from when he planted this church. 
And there's really not any major issues up until this point in this particular church. Uh, you know, a little bit of what we talked about last week if, if you were here, um, but nothing really major. So he writes this letter to encourage them. He writes this letter to thank them. We're gonna talk about that a little bit today. But he also writes this letter to say, hey, this is kind of how I'm dealing with all the things that I've had to deal with in my life, the good and especially the, the tough times. And so this letter is to encourage them and to help them. Well, we're going to spend our time this morning in Philippians chapter 4. We've got a few verses we're going to read there. And then we're going to see how Paul handles these tough things in his life. Philippians 4, starting with verse 10. Paul says, How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know that you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned a secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. There's a word, there's a term that Paul uses there that we're going to focus on. And again, the, the word he uses in the Greek is pretty, pretty powerful for the people who are listening. The, the Greek word is case, And you don't need to remember that for anything, all right? It's not going to help you in any way. But it's the only time that this particular word is used in the New Testament. But it was a popular term in those days because the Stoics like to use that particular word. And the reason that they used that word is because that really was their purpose for living. Now, what is the meaning of this word? It means being fully self-sufficient. It means being fully self-sufficient. So for the Stoic, contentment was a state of mind. And for you, you wanted to get to this place where you were independent of everything. You were independent of everything in the world and you were independent of every person in the world. And so to reach this independence, to reach contentment in your life, there were three things that were pretty important to the Stoics. I'm going to share these with you quickly. First one was eliminate all desires. Like those Air Jordans you want because they match your outfit pretty well. Stoics like, nope, you don't need it. I mean, yes, they would match, but you don't need that. Eliminate those desires. Or maybe today you're thinking about going to Dairy Queen after church and getting a blizzard. Stoic would be like, nope, you don't need that blizzard. You don't need that Reese's peanut butter blizzard with chocolate ice cream. Even though it would taste pretty good, you, you need to eliminate that desire for that. Like, this is the mentality of the Stoics. This is what they're trying to teach. You, you found contentment by abolishing your desires. Until you got to this place where you wanted nothing or no one. But there's another tenet that they live by, and that was to eliminate your emotions. Just get rid of them. Uh, some of you have probably been in this situation before. You're in the car, and you're going on a date, and uh, you ask the person beside you, you're like, hey, where would you like to go eat? And they say those words that are infamous, I don't care. And then you respond and you say, okay, since you don't care, then how about we go here to eat? And their response to you is, no, that's not where I want to go. <laughs> and you're like, well, so you actually do care. You say you don't care, but you do care. Because I tell you and ask you this question, you're like, I don't care. But I'm saying, hey, let's go here. And you're like, no, I do care. So do you not care or do you, do you care? I mean, you're trying to figure this out, right? For the Stoic, this is the I don't care stage for them. This is where emotionally you don't care what happens to things and you don't care what happens to people. Someone breaks your favorite coffee mug 
The one you use every single day. You clean it out, but you use it every single day. You know what the Stoic says? I don't care. Or tomorrow morning you go to work and as soon as you get there, like, hey, HR needs to sit, see you. You go, you sit down, they're like, you're done. Can't go back to your office. We're gonna escort you out right now. You know what the Stoic says? The Stoic says, I don't care. Or someone close to you passes away. The Stoic says, I don't care. See, the Stoic wanted to get to this place in their life where they let go of every human emotion you can think of. Uh, we have, uh, we call people today who function in that way, and you probably know some, we call them stoic in nature, right? It feels like there's no emotional attachment to them. Well, for the Stoics, they believed in the elimination of emotions. But then there's a third piece to this, that everything was the will of God. And so no matter how terrible your life was, how painful it was, how disastrous it was, hey, it's just the will of God. And so why do you struggle with it? Why are you so upset about it? Why are you trying to get God involved in your life? God, God's living God's life. God's basically playing a game with humanity. So you don't need to think about it. You don't need to worry about it. Don't be upset about it. Just keep living your life. Because for them, everything was the will of God. T.R. Glover, New Testament scholar, said the Stoics made of the heart a desert and called it a peace. Now, Stoic ideas were very popular in Paul's day. And as you read here, you know, Glover says that although they were popular, they were really empty. And here's Paul who uses this word content that the people that are hearing this letter read to them would have understood they would assume that it was connected to the Stoics and their ideas, their philosophies of life. But that's not what Paul's talking about when he uses this word. Paul's not talking about being self-sufficient. He's talking about something much deeper and something much better. Paul's talking about a real peace that comes from true contentment. Well, what would that kind of contentment look like? Well, I think there's a question that... We've got to answer, which is really easy and hard at the same time. And that question is, do you have enough for you? Do you have enough for you? Uh, we like to play the if game, don't we? If I was making more money, I'd be content. If I had a newer car, I'd be content. If I could get that promotion, I'd be content. If the commanders would get a new owner, I'd be content. <laughs> and so some of you should be very, very content in your life here very very soon. The if game is where we look at our lives and we think there are more things that we need. That if we get this one thing, if we add this one thing, that we will finally be content. And maybe for you it is a job. Maybe for you it's money. Maybe it's that relationship. Maybe it's this experience. We think if we get these things, then we'll finally have contentment in our life. But here's the problem that you and I have. Contentment is always a moving target. Like we feel like if we get to this place, we'll be content, right? We set a goal and say, if I reach that goal, I'm going to be content in my life. And we reach that goal, we're like, well, maybe a little bit higher. Maybe that goal needs to be a little bit more. Then, then I'll be content. Or we get to this place saying, hey, you know, if I, if I just make this amount of money and you get to that place and you make that amount of money and before you said, hey, I'm going to be content here and you get there like, well, maybe just a little bit more. See, we're never content. 
contentment isn't something we find contentment with, right? We just continue to move the target higher and higher. But why do we do this in our life? What is it that keeps us from not feeling contentment for the life that we have? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first one is we like to complain. We are really, really good at complaining. Marshall Goldsmith is an executive coach. Um, he had about 200 clients and he went in, he was trying to figure out, you know, just some, get some data points from the places that he was working with. And he goes in and he finds out that he's talking to all these different companies that a majority of employees spend 10 plus hours every single month complaining themselves or listening to other people complain. What are they complaining about? The work, their boss, upper management. And some of you are like, yep, I got all three. I know exactly what those complaints are all about. Well, he did a little bit more research and he found out that a third of those same employees spend 20 plus hours every single month complaining. And journalist James Glassman calls this the culture of complaint. Right? We love to complain. We love to complain about our boss. We love to complain about our work. We love to complain about employees, about our kids' coaches, about our sports teams. I mean, complaining is just kind of like, seems to be part of our DNA these days. But we also love to complain about what we don't have. I don't have that. Fill in the blank, whatever it may be for you. That car, those clothes, that house, that remodeled kitchen. And we say to ourselves, I'll be content if I get those things. But we get them and we just continue to complain because what we have is never enough for us. And so we continue to live this life where it really is for us a culture of complaining. And so this is one reason we're not content. Another reason is we, we like to compare. Uh, it's said that we live in the land of er, faster, thinner, bigger, shinier, sexier. We add er to everything in our life because we're never satisfied with what we have. Now, why are we not satisfied? It's because we look at everybody else around us or other people in our life and we see what they have and we begin to compare ourselves to them. Look at what they have. I need that. Look at the vacation they just took. I need to take that exact same vacation. Look at the house they just bought. I need to buy a house just like that. We play this comparison game. And we look at ourselves and we're like, I'm content. But then we see our neighbor, we see a coworker, we see a friend and what they're doing or what they have. And then that contentment's gone. And we begin to compare ourselves to them. And like, but they've got so much more. And for us, many times... That means we feel like we failed. Like I'm not quite as good as them or we're not quite like they are because of this comparison game that we love to play and so we're never content. We complain, we compare, and none of that will ever bring contentment for us. So how do we find this contentment? We go back to what Paul writes here. He's finishing up this letter to the Philippians and um, Throughout the series, we've been talking about how he's under house arrest. He's in Rome. He's about 800 miles away from this church in Philippi. And um, in house arrest in those days, 
was, uh, it was extremely costly because um, the Romans didn't really care, right? Like, if nobody helped you and you died, that, that was great for them. They'd unchain themselves, get rid of your body, and just move on. Um, and so you needed people, if you were under house arrest, to supply your needs. And when I'm talking about needs, I'm talking about food. I'm talking about clothing. I'm talking about money. And so this, um, where Paul is, he, he needs this kind of support. And so he's getting this from some individuals, and he's getting this from some of the churches that he has planted. Well, as we go back to what we just read a little bit ago, at one point in time, this church in Philippi, it actually wanted to help Paul out. It's thought that this church was actually pretty poor, and uh, they were trying to bring stuff and get stuff to him, and they just couldn't do it. But as we read what we read right now, we find, especially if you read a little bit further beyond what we're going to read today, they actually are able to help him. And so they send somebody who's got some money and some clothes and some food to help Paul out. And so Paul's pretty happy about this. He appreciates what they've done. We read that in verse 10 a little bit, but he says this in verse 14. He says, even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. Here's Paul who is saying, hey, thank you for what you're doing for me. He's like, you know what I'm going through right now, being under house arrest. Thank you for what you've sent to help me out. And I read that and I think to myself, that's probably where contentment begins. Contentment begins with being grateful. The question for us to answer is, do you regularly express gratitude? It's one of the things we teach our kids and we've taught them since they were little, like, hey, you need to say thank you. And sometimes we got to tell them, what do you say? And they're like, you know, and they're depressing teenage voices, thank you. And some of you are familiar with that, right? But you got to do that. You got to remind them over and over again. And it's not because we're being militant in how we do this and because it's like this, this, this piece to who they need to be. But, but it really is, right? When they become adults, we want them to be thankful. Like when people give them stuff or do things for them, or even if they're just kind to them, that they can have this, this, this ability to tell someone, thank you, to be grateful for what they've been given. For instance, um, Say you're driving on the Beltway tomorrow and uh, your tire blows out. Someone stops to help you. I'm pretty sure you're going to say, hey, thank you. Or you go to lunch with someone this week and they pick up the tab. You know what? You're probably going to say thank you. Because if you don't, there's a few things these people are going to think about you. First off, they're going to think this person's just not grateful, right? They're going to say, hey, why, why didn't this person say thank you to me? Secondly, they're going to say, I'm never going to do this for this person ever again. Because they're not grateful for what I've done for them. And there's a bonus. Maybe the person who fixed your tire and you didn't say thank you to, maybe in their mind, like, man, I hope you blow another tire on your way to work. It's kind of the way we view this. Because we've forgotten how to be grateful for what we have. And so being grateful is so important. And Paul is expressing that gratitude for what this church has done for him. Are we grateful for the things that we have and what people have done for us. See, I think sometimes we have forgotten about the blessings we do have. There's a rumor that goes around in the office that I don't like hymns, okay? And um, the idea has been that, you know, we were doing some theme or topic and Gary's like, hey, we should do this hymn. And I'm like, nope, like I'm Mr. Scrooge. I'm like, nope, we're not going to do that. Let's do something else. Now, the reality is I do like hymns. They are rich in theology. 
But uh, I think part of it for me is I grew up in a church that uh, back in the day, it's all you had, right? And so from the time I was born, I was in the church and that's all I knew for many, many years. So sometimes you can come to my house and I'll just start singing a hymn because it just pops in my head. Now, I don't sing it very well. I sing it terribly. And my kids are like, Dad, what are you doing? What is that song? And I have to kind of explain it to them and where it's coming from. But for those of you who uh, are familiar with hymns and, and grew up with those, um, you probably know the hymn's names and what number it is because, <laughs> right? The hymnal is sacred text you do not mess with. But, uh, but there was one we used to sing called Count Your Blessings. And if you think about that song, Count Your Blessings, there's actually a challenge in it. Now, I, I never thought about this when we were singing it growing up, because I was like, can we just hurry up so I can get out of here, so I can go do whatever I want to do. Um, but as I, I, I was going through this message, and I'm thinking about that song, I'm like, there's a challenge in this song that I think sometimes we forget. You go to the chorus, it says, count your blessings. Now, all you hymn experts, help me out. Count your blessings, name them. Oh, yeah, a lot of you went to the same church. Um, and then next part is count your many blessings. See what God has done. I wonder what would happen if we began to accept that challenge in our life. That if you and I began to see the things that we have in our life, like, man, look at all the blessings I do have. Instead of complaining about what I don't have, instead of comparing myself to someone else, what if I began to look at my life and say, wow. Look at what I do have. And you and I began to count our blessings and name them one by one and count our blessings and really see what God has done in our life. And instead of saying, look what I'm missing, look at what I don't have, maybe it's time to have that attitude of, of gratitude. Because that's what Paul has. Paul is telling this Philippian church Thank you. Thank you for what you have given me. And maybe that's a place you and I need to begin when it comes to contentment. To be able to say thank you for the things we do have. But there's another piece to this too. Paul says, there's basically a secret to this. Yeah, I, I've got this heart of gratitude for what I've been given and how people are helping me. But there's, there's a secret here. And I skip this. It's verse 13. It says, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. My guess is that somebody in here has that tattooed across your back, right? Or maybe your ankle or as someone left today, they're like, yep, I got it right here on my wrist. I mean, this is kind of the go-to verse for us that for a follower of Christ, isn't it? Uh, if there was a top 10 chart of um, the, the most popular Bible verses, this would be like number two or number three. Now, for so many of us, we, we see that and we're like, man, that is so true. It, it's so powerful. It's, it's a good reminder to us. And I'll also tell you, it is often misused and misapplied. You think about that business person you know who's really successful. Maybe they're a follower of Christ. They're like, hey, I, I'm successful because, because Jesus gives me strength to do what I'm doing. Or my favorite is athletics, right? Like every athlete who does something amazing all of a sudden is a Christian and they're throwing out like, man, I was able to kick that field goal because Jesus gave me strength to kick it right between, between those goalposts. We see that over, over again in the athletic world or, 
Or maybe for you and for me, it's all the good things that happen, right? It's our catchphrase. Something good happens in our life. We're like, man, I was able to do this because Jesus gives me these abilities and these skills to do what I do. And I'm able to do the specific thing in my life. That's why I'm successful. That's why I'm where I am. And Paul is not saying that at all. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, no matter what I have or don't have, No matter what's going on in my life, whether it's really, really good or really, really bad, no matter what I've experienced in my life, whether it's full of joy or it's very, very painful, Paul's like, I am content. And he says, it's not because of me. It's not because of what I have done. It's not because what I have accomplished in my life. It's not because of my self-sufficiency. Paul says, I am content with whatever I have plenty or little because of Jesus in me. See, see for, for Paul, contentment isn't about how good his relationship status is. It's not about how healthy he is. It's not about how great his job is or how much money he has in his bank account. It's not about his reason for success. It's not about his athletic abilities. His contentment comes from the strength that he gets from Jesus. Like that's the power behind that verse. But it's actually not the literal translation of that passage. Let me, let me read this to you because I think this is even more powerful than we tend to know and remember. What it really should say is, I can do everything through Christ who infuses strength into me. See, Paul isn't content because he's self-sufficient like the Stoics believed. Contentment for Paul isn't about human achievement. It's not about some mechanical, methodical self-discipline or resolution that he's really, really good at. This isn't where his contentment comes from. He's not like the Stoics. Now, the Stoics would take this verse, and here's how it would read for them. I can do all things through me who gives me the strength I need to be self-sufficient. Can we be honest? That's probably the same way many of us would write that same verse. Paul, Paul says his contentment comes from the strength that is infused into him through Jesus. Like he's tried to be content in every other way that you can imagine. Now, many of the ways that you and I kind of go through our life. He, he's tried everything. He's tried to rely on himself. He's tried to rely on self-sufficiency. But Paul's like, and we talked about this last week, it got me nowhere. Like I'm another failure for trying to live that kind of life. What Paul is saying here is that he's not self-sufficient. But for him, he's God-sufficient. That the strength that he needs to live the life that he has been called to live comes through this infusion of Jesus and Jesus' strength into his life. And Paul says, I am content, I'm content because of that. If you were to take an inventory of your life right now, honestly, if you were to just kind of stop and, and, and think about your, your life, If you were to count your blessings, right? I am pretty sure that every single one of us in this room have everything we need. Like there's nothing else we need. I mean, if you make $50,000 here 
in America, you're in the top 1.5% of the global population. Now, I know it's really expensive to live here and all that, but, but at the same point, we, we've got more than we need, and yet we keep wanting more and more. And I bet, again, if we took an inventory of our life, we would truly find that we should be content. But maybe the thing that's missing for you and for me is the infusion of Jesus into our life to give us the strength to be content no matter what we have or don't have. Now, are there ways that we can live this out in our life? I think there's a couple things we can do. The first one is baptism. Um, some of you, maybe this isn't uh, the place that you've been yet in your life. Maybe you haven't taken that step in your spiritual journey. But here's the deal. When, when you look at Scripture and you read through the New Testament, <coughs> what you find is that when people are baptized, <coughs> they're given the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, okay? What that tells me is that at that moment, the Holy Spirit is infused into you. It was infused into me when I was nine years old. And I made that decision to follow Christ and be baptized. It's infused into us, which should give us the strength that we need in our life to be content with what we have. Here in just a few moments, we're going to have a baptism at the end of our service. And uh, <clears throat> we get to watch Nikki take this huge step in her spiritual journey. But, but maybe that's the place you're at too. Like maybe you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, Maybe I need to take this step. Maybe I need this infusion of, of Jesus into my life. And hey, we've got shorts, we've got t-shirts, we've got towels. We can hook you up. The water is ready. The water is warm. Just let us know. People can leave and we'll, we'll make that happen. If you're at that place, man, come find me or Joel and one of the other staff members. And we'd love to have that conversation with you. Or maybe you want to have more information about baptism. What that looks like, there's a QR code in front of you. Take a picture of that, fill out the connection card. Let us know that. You can take the paper connection card there and fill that out and take it out to our guest tent. They'd love to talk to you about baptism because it is this moment where we are infused with the Holy Spirit. And again, it gives us strength in our life, but it gives us strength to be content. So maybe that's the first step that we need to take. But I'll tell you a step that every single one of us need to take, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, and it's having this attitude of gratitude. That we have got to stop complaining about what we don't have. That we've got to stop comparing ourselves to other people. And if we go back to that song, maybe it's time to start counting our blessings and naming them one by one. Here's a practical idea for you. Grab a journal. Uh, maybe your phone, computer. And every day for the next 30 days, just write down one thing. It could be a word, it could be a sentence, it could be a phrase, whatever you want. Just, just write it down. That one thing that you're thankful for every day for the next 30 days. And at the end of those 30 days, I want you to go back and read all the things you're thankful for. Because I believe if we begin to have this attitude of gratitude, that it'll begin to change who we are and how content we see ourselves. Especially if we can go back and we can look at all the blessings that we have in our life. That's one way we can do this. Another idea is just to verbalize thank you, right? Sometimes we just don't say thank you to people. Say thank you to the people in your house. Say thank you to the people you work with. Uh, if you're a parent and you're up here right now and you got kids downstairs, I'm going to get on to you a second here. Um, if you don't say thank you to our volunteers, shame on you, okay? It's so easy to do. You're getting some time upstairs to be in here. 
As we've got adults downstairs and teenagers downstairs that are helping invest in your kid, if they don't hear thank you from you, man, it may be the, the thing in their life that's like, maybe this isn't worth it for me. Take the time to say thank you. Thank the people at the grocery store. I bet they don't get thanked a whole lot. People who work there. Maybe it's Burger Kings. I know those people don't get thanked a whole lot. So just wherever you are, just use those words. Write thank you notes. Kara makes us write thank you notes every time somebody gives us something. And I got to admit, there's a teenage part in me is like, oh, not again. But you write that and there's something powerful behind that. And somebody comes to you like, hey, I really appreciate that note you sent me. Just take the time to have this attitude of gratitude in your life. Contentment is something we all struggle with and contentment is something we should all strive for because in the end as we think about what Paul says here maybe we can find contentment through Christ who infuses his strength into you and me